This is Abacus. I'm Bob the CPA. My guest today is Greg Kite. We're going to talk a little bit about how he's making CPE just a little more fun. Comedy CPE, it's the, it's the great place where I've found where I can combine both my expertise as a, a CPA and my experience as a stand-up comedian to make some really fun, really engaging and entertaining, but also very content-driven continuing education courses. But first, he'll tell you exactly how he changed careers from math teacher to accounting. It was challenging, but it wasn't as challenging as my brain thought it would be. And finally, there have been some recent changes in the CPE world, so I've asked Matt Briggson from Encorsa to come back and give us a quick update. All this coming up on Abacus. Let's go. Learn everything you need to know to have a successful and fulfilling accounting career. Whether you're on the partner track or you're making your own path, this is Abacus. What's up, everybody? This is The Abacus Show, where I bring together the best thought leaders, teachers, and accounting professionals from all over the world to share their experience to help you become a top performer. For those of you who don't know Greg, here's a quick rundown. He's a former math teacher turned corporate controller who does stand-up comedy and combines it with CPE to create a fun learning experience. And if that wasn't enough, he also is a co-host of The Thrival Podcast. This episode is just a little bit longer than usual, but there was so much good stuff I didn't want to cut any of it out. Greg and I are going to cover how he started his career as a math teacher, why he hated it, and how he made the change to accounting. He'll tell us what he's doing now on a day-to-day as a controller and what that job actually looks like. And then we'll get in-depth on continuing education, including a few things Greg would change if he could, and why he uses humor to engage his students and help them learn. You can get a summary and links to everything we talk about today in the show notes for this episode at abacusshow.com slash 207. Now, here's the interview with Greg Kite. Greg, welcome to the Abacus Show. Thanks. I am glad to be here. Thanks for finding me. I know. Actually, uh, you were recommended by multiple people, but most recently, um, Caleb over, uh, founder of Going Concern, I was talking to him last week, and you were the first name that popped up. He's like, you got to talk to this guy. He's hilarious. So it's great to have you here. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I uh, I blogged for, uh, for Caleb on Going Concern. I think I started in maybe 2012. And uh, and and the trolls on their site they didn't wear me down until this year, so uh, so I was I was contributing regularly for him. That's some resilience. That's uh, that's kind of uh, how comments go over there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so you said you obviously you're writing, you're doing stand up comedy and CPE now, kind of putting all that together. But I was surprised to learn you started out as a math teacher. Would you mind kind of just walking us through? your career and how you've made the decisions to get to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. Uh, when I was, I'll go way back. to when I was in middle school, actually, when I was in eighth grade, my mom, uh, who's a, who's a pharmacist, she's retired now, but she, she was a pharmacist. She opened a drugstore out in Mount Lake Terrace, Washington. It, it, she, she was, uh, it was a partnership with her and some other folks that took over this pharmacy and the partnership went deep into the toilet within about a year, a year and a half. So I think it was when I was in eighth grade that her partners just said, screw you, Mrs. Kite, we're out of here. And they left her high and dry and she needed an employee to run the register. I started doing that. And before too long, I think when I was a sophomore, like 15 or 16, sophomore in high school, I started learning how to do the books for my mom's drugstore. And I was 
I was doing the, you know, the nightly reconciliations, things like that, that we had to do just to, just to keep, you know, deposits, things like that, uh, to keep things going at the drugstore. And I loved it. I loved the bookkeeping stuff. So, and I also excelled a lot in math in school. So fast forward to when I was a student at the University of Washington, trying to figure out what my major should be. I was really good at math, but I really enjoyed the, the little bit of accounting that I'd been exposed to. So I had to figure out, you know, what, what the right choice was for me for the rest of my life. And I chose uh, math. And at that point, I didn't know what anyone would do with a math degree except teach. So I went into math education, which landed me at Dixon Middle School in Provo, Utah. For uh, I guess I was there for eight years. And I also spent a year at the very beginning of my career as a teacher and at the end as a high school teacher. And I pretty much didn't like it at all. I pretty much hated it. And I even knew that, like, even my first year of teaching, I was kind of like, this isn't really for me. So I, uh, I went to, I, I waited tables and then I got married and then I realized that health insurance was awesome. So I went back to teaching because that's the only, uh, that's the only career that I could go into that offered benefits. But, you know, I, it still wasn't for me. I, I, you know, I tell people that, you know, I left education mostly because I couldn't stand those little bastards. And uh, so, uh, but, but then it was pretty obvious because it's like, well, my first choice was math. That was a wrong choice. So what else could I do? Oh, the, the other thing I didn't like about teaching, like anybody who's a educator would tell you is the money is pretty crappy. Uh, so the the uh, the dream of home ownership seemed like it was getting further and further away when I was a teacher as well. So I thought, well, you know, the plan B, uh, or at least the two plan A's that I had to choose from. So this, you know, the de facto plan B was accounting. So uh, I went back. Uh, how, gosh, it was in 2006. Uh, so yeah, 10 years ago, I went back to school. And it took me two years to get an accounting degree, and then two years after that to get my MBA with an accounting emphasis. And then it took me about four months after that to bang through the CPA exam. So I was licensed at the beginning of 2011. I stopped teaching in 2008, started working for a CPA firm. Uh, that burned me out really quick, but I got hired away by a, a client, and that's the job I still have working as a controller for a group of medical office buildings, which is, uh, it's turned out to be a fantastic, challenging and exciting place for me to work. That's an awesome story. Cause I feel there's a lot of people who I see asking questions online or kind of emails I get that are worried if they didn't think accounting was right for them right after school, they can't go in that route of go work for an accounting firm, get your CPA later in life. Did you find it was very challenging uh, more so than if you had gone straight into accounting or did you kind of make up for it in life experience or how'd that work for you? Well, I think the transition was, it was challenging, but it wasn't as challenging as my brain thought it would be. Because I, I had thought about making the switch for a lot of, I mean, at least contemplated it. And I just figured that going back to school, you know, since I was, you know, I was married, I had kids, you know, there's all this stuff that I didn't have uh, way back when I went to college the first time um, that I thought would make it, make it difficult. But I, you know, I found out that there's plenty of ways to do, uh, you know, when I did my undergrad, I did as many, uh, you know, independent study and online courses as I could. And like I said, that was, that was 2006, 2007, 2008 that I did that stuff. In the last 10 years, your options for online education have exploded. So there's way more opportunities to be able to get that education. 
in ways that, that will support whatever lifestyle you currently have. So it was hard, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. As a matter of fact, even during that time, I was still able to do quite a bit of stand-up comedy while I was doing you know, more than I more than I had expected. And I guess maybe even in retrospect, more than I probably should have. I mean, I got great grades, and I don't know exactly where I found the time to do all of that. Um, but but it even took its toll on that because I had to you know I had to give up on a lot of dates, and my uh, my MBA course was called an executive MBA course. So we met for four hours every Friday night and four hours every Saturday morning. So Friday nights is a, a uh, kind of a key time to be available to do things like stand-up comedy. So, you know, it did, it did take its toll on that stuff, but it was, it was doable. And, uh, and I, I made it work. I guess in hindsight, it's hard to say whether it would have been easier had I jumped straight into accounting because when you have a mid, uh, you know, midlife career, change i was in my uh, late 30s mid mid 30s i guess it was in my mid 30s when i made that change and so i realized like from the get-go that i had you know i had 10 i had to catch up 10 years on uh on my peers so i i went after pretty i had a i had a i was very uh well i guess i want to say aggressive that's maybe not the right word but i was going after it pretty hard like i I, uh, you know, to try to catch up with people, I did stuff that maybe didn't make a difference. Like I, I remember I read every, uh, every issue of the journal of accountancy for those four years that I was in school, cover to cover every damn word. And i just because I felt like I needed to know more about what I was doing and I had to, I had to catch up. Um, so, you know, so I was, I was a little bit more aggressive. I got very involved with state, with our state society very early on. Uh, which is actually how I landed uh, my first job at that firm is because they were like this, you know, they, first off, they were so excited that a student would come to the, to the, uh, the chapter luncheons that, that I was like a rock star just for showing up for that. That was nice. But they also have this weird uh, perception that if somebody has the, has the, uh, you know, the drive to come to the, the chapter meetings for the state society, that for some reason that means that they are they must be a fantastic accountant uh, in process. And maybe not necessarily true, but it was enough of a smokescreen that I got that job and was able to get my foot in the door. They even even they hired me right after I just got my bachelor's in accounting. Even though the firm policy at that time was that they were looking for people who were more like CPA ready, uh, you know, people who already gotten their 150 hours, things like that. So so yeah, so I think. I think there were some challenges because I didn't come up in the profession, but the, the benefit was I had more of the eye of the tiger to, to really go after it. As long as we're on the subject, would you mind walking us through what you do today as a controller? I think a lot of people hear that title and they hear it as something they could possibly do after maybe a public accounting stint, but I think a lot of people are still unsure what that actually is. So would you mind walking us through maybe a typical week or a month end or something like that? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll do my best. I don't, one of the things that I I think is that there's a lot of difference from controller position to controller. There's a lot of variation. Like if you're working in an accounting firm, you know, depending on after you figure out which department you're in, I think the expectations are pretty pretty set. Once you get into industry, I think there's a lot more variation in terms of what your actual uh, responsibilities entail. For me, I basically get to shepherd five different LLCs 
two have very, very minimal activity. So for those two LLCs that I'm in charge of, there's that's that basically is you know once a year some bookkeeping and a tax return, which in the past those tax returns I've farmed out to a CPA firm just for 2015. I, since they they're easy returns and I can do it a lot cheaper in house than the CPA firm is. I actually brought those tax returns back in house. Um, there's a, another LLC that I that I manage that's actually a storage facility that's part of one of our buildings, like a public self storage thing. So that involves, uh, and I'm I'm a one man show for that. So I I actually do everything for this weird little storage facility. Uh, everything from marketing to to orienting new storage clients to our storage facility to you know running running the QuickBooks to doing the automatic uh, credit card payments uh, and even with that again that was another return that in the past we we farmed that off to the CPA firm but for 2015 I did that in house and uh, it just uh, a notable thing I made a I made a nice uh, glaring mistake on that tax return so I get a file an amended state return for those guys. Uh, but part of the part of the learning curve, and that's actually one of the things that I like. A lot of people say that controllership gets really boring because you do the same thing every week and every month and every year, and it's just very, very routine. I've found that in my position, uh, I've got a lot of autonomy uh, with where I work, so I'm able. If I feel like I'm ready for a new challenge, I can I can pull things back from the CPA firm that we work with and start doing those things in house. So that's kind of how I. I keep myself sharp and challenge myself. But then the two the two main LLCs that I work at, it's actually one, uh, each LLC, uh, basically the whole thing that, that LLC owns is a medical office building. So for each of those LLCs, I do all the accounting with the leases, with the owner's distribution. Uh, so, so again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bookkeeping we do. There's a lot of finance that we do. I meet with banks to get big loans that we then divide up to all of our owners who own suites in our buildings. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a finance component. There's a lot of accounting. I do a lot of the grunt work for the CPA firm every year when we do our, our, uh, our taxes. There's a lot of communication that I do with our owners. We have about, uh, I think we've got about 10 owners at one of the buildings and we've got about 25 owners at the other building. So there's a lot of communication I do with the owners just about the financial health and the, the you know, the different activity, all the different things that are coming up, whether it's uh, re, a refinance is coming up. And we just had that last year, uh, one of the buildings was on a long-term land lease that we ended up uh, being able to purchase the land. And that was a giant, you know, $1.5 million deal that I got to walk from the very beginning to the very end. And, you know, I, and another thing for me as a controller, something that I didn't uh, anticipate, but that's a very regular part of my uh, job is I work very closely with our uh, attorney. It's not he's not an in-house attorney, but he's a guy that we uh, you know that we contract with to do our you know all our different legal work. And so I've become kind of a junior attorney for these companies reviewing leases uh you know re- reviewing a lot of documents even sometimes I'll play if I if I don't feel like uh paying uh, $400 to our attorney to to write up a promissory note or something like that I'll just take his own promissory note and I'll I'll uh, cannibalize it and make my own and figure that I'm I'm adhering to Utah state uh law regarding uh practicing 
lawyership without a license uh, and, and that, that everything's going to work out just fine with that. But, but yeah, uh, legal stuff is another big component of my job that I didn't expect, but it's, it's boring on one hand because nothing's worse than reading through a, a 38 page lease. But, uh, but on that hand, it's interesting to just get those skills and to, to grow in that way. That's really interesting. It seems like you're wearing a lot of hats. So that's, uh, I think something people like to hear about is just like, what will I actually be doing? So thank you for that. Right. Well, and I guess another thing about being a controller as opposed to working in public accounting is, again, just, just with the autonomy that I have, because I'm, I'm a one-man accounting department, which, again, that's, I, know, I think that's pretty unique. Uh, but, but, again, like I said before, I think most controllerships are probably very different from other controllerships, depending on what the company is and how big your department is and all that sort of stuff. But I came into a really chaotic and messy situation that I've been able to implement a lot of systems, streamline a lot of the processes within all five of these uh, these LLCs, even to the to the point where, like at this point, just all by myself, I am doing the work that we at one point had seven different people uh, on board doing, including me. So I was one of seven people, and now we've simplified it, and just through attrition, we've come down to to where I'm doing all that work that seven people were doing. And I still have a fair amount of slack in my day to do things like, you know, write blog posts and be interviewed uh, by people for their podcasts and things like that. So, so I've got quite a bit of flexibility and freedom in my schedule to even do things that aren't necessarily directly tied to my job. But because of the, because of the advances I was able to, to, to find and implement in terms of efficiencies with how we run the accounting of these uh, of these businesses, that's that's really afforded me a lot of uh, career capital. I think is the word that people use. So I have a lot of career capital where I've got flexibility, I've got uh, discretion in terms of how I use my time, and that's really been great for me for pursuing all these other side interests that I have. And you have a few, so <laughs> it's good you have the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess speaking of. I've, Maybe jumping into the CPE side of things now, since you're doing the comedy CPE, I was wondering if you could kind of tell us what are your thoughts on CPE in general and the current level of requirements? Do you think it's adequate? Do you think it's too much? Um, kind of just in general, what are your thoughts on CPE? Uh, in general, I think that CPE requirements are bullshit. Can I say bullshit on your podcast? You certainly can. Okay, then I'll, I'll stay with that word choice. Uh, in general, I think that CPE requirements are bullshit. As accountants, I mean, we, we live in an industry where there is a ridiculous amount of change, and it, especially if you're in tax, but it's not, it's not much lighter if you're in audit. The different, I mean, like right now, what we're, we're working with, you know, the, the changes for lease accounting, we're changing uh, revenue recognition accounting. I mean, those are the fundamentals of our profession that are being changed. You know, that's like telling a, a physicist, that there's going to be some dramatic changes to the laws of gravity and that they're going to have to pivot to be able to make sure that their bridges still work. And that's what we're, that's what we're working with. And anybody who takes their job seriously has to take continuing education seriously. So a requirement for continuing education is basically just the profession saying, Hey, we're going to we're going to we're going to force people to track this stuff and to make sure that that the people that the bad players that the lazy people 
in our profession aren't being so lazy. So I, I think that, that we naturally in this profession understand the amount of just updating, keeping our knowledge current is required to do what we do well. So, you know, and, I, and I'd say that's probably the same. I work with a lot of doctors. Like I said, my buildings are medical office buildings, and it's the same thing with them. They've got, they've got uh, continued education requirements for doctors, and obviously, you know, they, they have lives at stake. So, so I, I, I get it, but I'll still say that it's bullshit. That being said, it is a requirement that everybody has to live by. I would say that uh, that 80 hours is, well, I guess for us in, in Utah, it's 80 hours every two years. Most states, you know, if you average it out, it's 40, 40 hours a year. I think that that's, uh, that that's probably on the light side of what people should be doing. But regardless, it's required, and so that puts us into this position where we we have to we have to not only get things that are officially uh, sanctioned and licensed and certified as continuing education, but we've got to track those things. So we find ourselves in these situations, in these educational situations that are that are less than ideal. I did a I think it was just last year. I was very interested in taking a eight hour online fraud course that was presented by uh, Cal CPA. Very, very interested in this fraud course because uh, one of the courses that I teach with uh, Comedy CPE is a fraud course. So I was very, very uh, keyed in. To, I really wanted to, to try to observe and see all of this material, not just to get my own CPE out of the way, but also, and not just to learn because I think fraud is something that as a controller, I need to make sure that I'm on top of. But, uh, but, but even that, I'm sitting in this webinar for eight hours and you just realize after about two and a half that there's a very finite limit to the amount of time that a human being can actively engage with their computer screen with somebody. And it was even, it wasn't even a live webinar. It was like several weeks prior to this. And I was just clicking on the little, I'm still listening button as long as I could. Very sub, uh, suboptimal way of getting your, uh, your education is by just slogging through an eight-hour webinar. So there's a lot of things that are are less than ideal in our continuing education. And one of the things that I that I find with the comedy CP, because I do an ethics class and I do a fraud class, and so I guess it's maybe just a fear that I have that people look at something that says comedy CP and they say, oh, this guy is just he's just screwing around for for a couple of hours and, and uh, calling it CP and that's it. And that's totally not the case. All of this stuff is very content driven, both from the ethics side and from the fraud side. But what I'm able to do is I'm able to uh, to, to not only present it in a more effective way, because there's been studies that show that if uh, if educators infuse their content with humor, that it's more memorable, which totally makes sense because if people remember stuff that's funny. And if you're being funny, people are more engaged and they're they're tracking with you more closely. Not only that. If they're if they're thinking, oh, this guy's going to say something funny, you realize the first time you space out and you miss something that everybody else laughs at, you go, oh, I need to I need to stay keyed into the to the conversation to be able to get the jokes when they come up. But additionally, humor is an incredible it, it's a it's a great uh, uh, criticism tool. So when we're able to look at statistics, if we're able to look at fraud cases, if we're able to look at things and we look at them with trying to make fun of those things, what we're finding with those places 
that we make fun of those different things is we find the gaps in the, in, we find the problems with them. And by exposing those problems, I think that takes us to even a deeper level of, of education with those topics. So another thing, if you, I also have some opinions on nano learning, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's a, it's a new thing. I know they have it in Maryland and I think Ohio, but it's where you can get CPE certified for as, as little as 10 minutes, which at first I thought that was a joke because nobody's going to really learn anything in 10 minutes. And then I realized that that actually would be a great way to deliver uh, specifically ethics content. Uh, if, you have, if you live in a state that has uh, an ethics requirement, if you were required to take your ethics in 10-minute doses like once a week, that would be an effective way to keep ethics on the top of your mind throughout the year, which I think is the best way to help ensure the most ethical behavior from people in our profession. Yeah, I hadn't really heard much about that. I've kind of uh, seen the term before, but I never really looked into it. But I can't imagine taking like 100 different courses and having to find those all and like it seems like it would be very time-consuming to uh, try to go through and take a bunch of 10-minute courses as opposed to like a two-hour course. Right. And I think there's some – like I don't think you'd want to do, you know, some some uh, some big estate tax learning uh, type of course in 10-minute in increments. But I think there are some topics that would lend itself to that. You know, at first I poo-pooed it, but now I, I think I'm I'm a believer. And so while we're still talking about CPE, I'm going to ask you one of my favorite auditor walkthrough questions. Okay. If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about CPE, what would it be? Ooh, if I had a magic wand and I could change anything about CPE, what would it be? I, I think my magic wand would make it so that everyone could take continuing education live with instructors who were, who were funny and fun and engaging but didn't didn't skimp on the content as a result because I think that's not just the best way to to get your learning, but I think it's also it's just the most enjoyable way to keep your skills sharp. For anyone interested, are you traveling around the country giving these uh, performances for the comedy CPE, or is it always up in your area, or do you do it online, or how does that work? I don't do any online. One of the, I mean, again, that's, I know that that's the biggest uh, challenge that I have to comedy CPE is that my preferred method of delivery is live. The, the vast majority of what I'm doing is uh, at different conferences throughout the country. Uh, I'll get plugged into those conferences like, for instance, it's just a couple weeks ago, I was out in Oklahoma doing a, a conference for the Oklahoma Society uh, in uh, August. I'll be uh, at ZeroCon out in San Francisco. This fall, I'm going to be at the Thrival Deeper Weekend Conference out in Greenville, South Carolina. So it's mostly me plugging in the content that I do into other people's live events. Eventually, I'd love to be able to figure out a nice interactive way to do this stuff online. But as of now, I haven't found anything that really satisfies what I'm looking for in terms of a delivery method online. And then since you obviously can't attend your own performances, and I'm always looking for new places to find CPE, where do you actually take your CPE? I do mine like in the worst, because again, I feel like I do tons of learning just on my own in various, you know, various settings and various things that most of which aren't. NASMA certified and won't count for my official CPE. So 
the the fact that I I just need to get a lot of stuff under my belt. I typically do all mine in the most boring way, which is the uh, what a CPE Express that you can get through the AICPA, which is like a couple hundred bucks for a year's subscription for all you can eat continuing education. But that's online individual learning, so it's click it's reading and clicking through a bunch of slides and taking quizzes, which is a painful way to do your continuing education. This year, planning on actually switching that up, and uh, I'm I'm wanting to get my CFE designation. So I think that I think just getting my CFE will probably take care of most, if not all, of the 40 hours that I need for this year. I guess one real last quick question. Uh, where's the best place for people to find you online? The best place to find me is through my website, which is just gregkite.com. I mean, really, my, my last name is spelled K-Y-T-E. If you Google Greg Kite, I'm the only guy. That makes it easy. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. We really appreciate you coming on the show today. This is awesome. Okay. Thanks. It was fun to be here. Thanks again to Greg for coming on the show. You can find links to everything we just talked about in the show notes for this episode at abacusshow.com slash 207. One of Greg's points in the interview we just heard was that most of us don't have time or attention span to sit through a four to eight hour webinar to meet our CPE requirements. And even if we do, it's not the ideal way for most of us to actually learn and retain information. There's actually some interesting developments in the CPE world this year that are trying to change all that. The first is news from NASBA, and the second is something being tried out in Indiana. Now, I'm no expert in this stuff, so I asked my friend Matt Brigson from Encorsa to come back on the show and get us up to speed. So there's a lot of big changes coming to the CPE industry that will impact us. One of them right, right now, the other one coming up very shortly here. So we start with nano CP. You know, that, that term has thrown around a lot in the industry lately. You know, we heard about it first last year. And so NASBA and the AICPA, you know, they have this board together. They come out with standards for CP issuers to abide by. And last year, they, they proposed incorporating nano CP. So what nano is, it's 10 or 20 minute long self-study courses. Matt told me there are a couple reasons NASBA was considering nano CPE. First, a lot of people want a mobile solution, so you can sit on the train in your commute and get some CPE on the go. As Greg mentioned, this could work, but it might not be ideal for every topic. Another reason nano CPE is being considered is to make it easier for you to make CPE a part of simply doing your job. So instead of using Google to learn about a new technical issue, you could take a short 10 to 20 minute CPE course, and that way you're getting CPE credit for on-the-job learning you're already doing. That, those are the kind of two reasons that they, they propose nano CP. They, what they do is they, they issue this through their, their standards, and it's usually always in a draft form first. So last year, of course, it was in draft form. They gave everyone some time to, to voice their opinions and write comment letters to them. And to, to say they got some comment letters um, would be an understatement. They got just a ton of comment letters. Some offered praise for nano, but more of them were, were more concerned with, with the concept of nano CP. Notably, the New York State Society of CPAs, a few other boards and other societies issued concerns as well. And so what NASBA boards did is they kind of stepped back a little bit. They went back and made a few tweaks to their, their proposed standards, and they made it very clear that nano is supposed to be incorporated you know, as a tool to help people do their jobs better. Or they defined it as an interactive knowledge transfer mechanism. So I think they really we're concerned and they really want to move forward cautiously before making these standards final. With that said, um, the new exposure draft um, went out. 
and they're expected to make it final September 2016, so just coming up here in a couple of weeks. So we're all expecting that to go final. All right, and then I guess what is Indiana up to? You said they had some cool stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, so kind of along the whole lines of trying to find better ways to make CP more incorporated into the CP or the CPA job. Indiana kind of took an initiative. So they, they proposed competency-based CPE. So competency-based CPE is a way for CPAs to get CPE based on um, accolades and less on just, you know, needing a certain number of hours in a classroom or, or on a computer screen watching a presenter. So right now, if you're in Indiana, you should be able to take a competency-based ethics course that gives you credit based on completing the desired learning objectives and not based on how many hours you spent in class or on a webinar. So they, instead of making it an option for all CP that's required to renew the license, they just did it for the four-hour ethics requirement. So in Indiana, you have to renew your license every three years. And so now CPAs can, can, can use these competency-based programs to, to get their ethics requirements. And I expect Indiana to kind of keep an eye on us. Every, you know, so far, everything's gone good, but I expect them to roll us out and to the rest of the CP requirements too, if this goes good. So those of you that heard Matt on the show in season one, know that we talked about his company in Corsa. It's a free online platform that helps you keep track of all your CPE hours and find some new courses. Lately, they've been creating some of their own free CPE webinars. So I asked Matt to tell you guys a little bit about it. Um, so we got a lot going on. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, keep adding people in Corsa. Um, we're adding our, a lot to our course catalog. And we actually recently just launched um, our own platform to host our own webinars. So we went through the process of getting um, approved by NASBA to issue our own continuing education credit. So we kind of launched a separate platform where we do that. And then those, those uh, webinars are included on the Encorsa um, application as well. And we focus mostly on free or very, very cheap webinars. They, they don't really focus too much on like, NASBA updates or standards or anything like that. It's more about uh, process improvement type webinars. So we want everyone to leave all of our webinars, you know, taking something that they learned and they can apply right away in their job. So that's kind of what we've been going. We went in that direction and it's, it's going good. We had one that was focused entirely on Excel. So at CPAs, you know, we spend sometimes 90% or more of our day in Excel. And we had an um, Excel guru his name's Jim Klein. He owns uh, ExcelCEO.com. He called the Chief Excel Officer, and so he came out and presented. And uh, he basically just went through five or six really awesome formulas and techniques that CPAs and um, other financial professionals can use um, as they're you know kind of going through their data and their day-to-day jobs. And you could tell just you know responses from the audience and everything. The light bulbs just went off right away. It's like wow, this can save me so much time. Um, we had another presenter on recently, and she talked about forecasting techniques. So everyone kind of, you know, uses their own techniques when they get client data for forecasting. She went through um, also in Excel, but she really focused it almost um, entirely on forecasting. So she showed people some tools and tricks and ways to, to set up um, their forecasting models. Where is the best place for people to find these, uh, the webinars? Or do you have a calendar of what's, what's coming up or... Kind of where's the best way for people to be notified of upcoming webinars so they can see if there's anything they're interested in? Yeah, so two ways. Um, so, you know, Corsa.com, it's, it's our web application. It's our flagship web application. That's where people can uh, sign up. They can track their CPE. They can upload their course reports, set their deadlines. And there's also the, the marketplace of continuing education courses. So we have courses there from many different vendors, um, including GenCast, which is our own platform where we do our own webinars. So you can find courses there if you're already a um, user in Corsa, which is 
100% free to sign up for. Um, otherwise, you know, if you don't want to go directly to Encorsa, you can go to uh, GenCast.io, that's G-E-N-C-A-S-T.io, and we have a list of webinars coming up. So we just launched it a couple months back, but those are all um, NASA-approved continuing education webinars, um, and you can find those there and register directly from there. All right, Matt, thank you so much for coming back on. Really appreciate you stopping by to uh, fill us in on what's going on in CPE right now. Hey, thanks, Bob. And uh, just to let you know, too, we've, you know, we talk to people, so many people in the industry every day, and we've heard so many people say good things about your podcast. So keep up the great work. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. It's always good to hear good feedback. All right. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on all of our past episodes and get access to tons of training courses, cheat sheets, articles, and downloads by visiting abacusshow.com.